at the bar or everybody in the booth but the one guy and the man at the end said would you like a drink kid and I said I'm not 21 yet and he said I don't give a blank damn I'm Jack Duran and I own the place you want a drink or not kid Welcome to On the Grid, a podcast dedicated to the Valley of the Sun. This is a place where you can come to meet the creators and newsbreakers taking this metropolis to the next level. A place where you can learn about what's really happening in Phoenix. My name is Philip Haldeman and I'll be your host. I have about a decade's worth of experience as a journalist covering a number of communities throughout the Valley. I and my friend Chris Ayers created this podcast to dispel those images that outsiders like to bandy about. Images of Sheriff Joe Arpaio and SB 1070. We will show that Phoenix is steeped in creative soil and rich with stories. But first, the news. For every episode of On the Grid, we'll take a brief moment to fill you in on what's been happening in the Valley. The installment is called The Stale News. We call it that because it's very likely that by the time you actually listen to it, the following news items will be old. But for posterity and to serve as a signpost along the highway of our lives, here is the news. A new bar in downtown Phoenix, home to 40 retro arcade games, opened on Friday, January 8th. The throwback pub opened to lines of people around the building waiting to relive their youth, but this time on alcohol. The bar houses a number of arcade classics including Punch-Out, Tempest, Star Wars, Strider, and 720 Degrees. Cobra's Island Bar features 14 beers on tap and 10 game-themed specialty cocktails on the drink menu, and a change machine to boot. On Sunday, the Arizona Cardinals survived a nail-biter against the Green Bay Packers, 20-26 in overtime, with a five-yard shovel pass to Larry Fitzgerald from Carson Palmer. The win puts the Cardinals in the NFC Championship game against the Carolina Panthers. And now, on with the show. In our first podcast, we have filmmakers Travis Mills and James O'Leary with Running Wild Films. It's a big week for them. The subject of their newest film is near and dear to many Phoenicians. Their focal point is a revered Arizona landmark, a place where residents have gone for decades for a steak and an old-fashioned. In fact, the restaurant was around when such cocktails were as common as ordering a beer and it existed still when such cocktails fell out of favor. But like the cyclical nature of life, such craft cocktails are popular once again thanks to the newest wave of hipsters. And in a town where buildings are disposable, Durant's remains. The name of the movie is Durant's Never Closes, and it stars Tom Sizemore. And in true Durant's form, this podcast includes adult language, so be forewarned. Welcome to the show, Travis Mills and James O'Leary. Your movie opens in Phoenix on Friday. Travis, you directed, and James, you did sound. Why did you guys choose Durant's as your subject matter? I past it all the time like most people in phoenix you know you pass this place you hear things about all these rumors about oh the mob used to hang out there and stuff like that and um it stuck with me we shot there for men who robbed the bank which was our third feature film james hates shooting inside durant's why do you hate shooting and it's there? just it's it's the noisiest restaurant. You would think for being so fancy and classy, but it's if you actually sit in there and listen, it's like the noisiest restaurant <laughs> I've ever been into. So we, we knew, I'm jumping ahead, but we knew that we couldn't shoot Durant's Never Closes inside Durant's. But but anyway, the what at some point I was doing research for a Don Bowles movie. Okay. Right. And I came upon this article in the New Times, the the feature article, the cover story for Durant's and uh its connection to don bowles and then i learned oh the the story is not at all the place it's the guy it's jack durant that's what's really interesting is the dude um and that's that that article by robert pella was what led me to making the movie and finding out about the play and the book because i had no idea there was a play or a book there's something cinematic about the character because it reminded me of uh like i'm a big fan of movies like raging bull with Rob De Niro and all that jazz with Roy Scheider. So I thought, this dude is so crazy uh, all over the place in the sense that he's, you know, there's people that are like, yeah, he's the most loyal person I've ever met. No, he was a raging psycho who, you know, who would try to kill you with a meat cleaver. And right? just so people know, obviously Jack Durant is the owner. He opened 
Durant's in the 1950s. Right. And basically his, his uh, reputation precedes him. He's yeah. passed away already. In 87. In 87. Okay. But it's like one of those, you know, if, if someone died in 87 and we're still talking about them, then I think that they're a good subject for a movie. You know? uh, and Durant's means a lot to a lot of different people in the Valley. You know what I mean? It's a pretty serious subject. Um, and I wonder if that, did that, was that daunting to you guys? What do you think? I don't know if we necessarily tried to get it right. We just tried to capture, I think we tried to capture more of his, I guess you would just say his, his essence, his aura. Jack Durant. Yeah, yeah. Rather than trying to make sure we had, you know, facts specific okay. kind of thing. And, and, you know, we, we had one of the, the hostess BJ back in the, the, you know, the actual, she was played. In, yeah. An tell extra. me a little about, about BJ. Um, she was a hostess. She was, a hostess at she was the major D. I don't remember okay. what the years were, but she was, you know, pretty much right there in the midst of it during the, the heyday of Durant's. And, uh, and she, she was a real cool lady. We interviewed her. We even had her play, um, a little role in the, in the film. And what was cool is when she was on set and Sizemore came out in character and we shot a few scenes, like she, she was just mesmerized with how well he captured the actual Durant. Okay. And that's why for us, it was good to know that maybe we don't have all the facts of everything right, but we captured the person, which is, I think, the main point of what we wanted to do. Yeah, that's the most important part. Apparently, she was sitting. She was sitting in next to Gus Edwards, who started running wild with me. And according to what I've been told, she started to tear up when she heard him. Like she did, she did not see him. She was waiting, but she could hear him do his first take as Jack Durant, and she started to tear up and said, "He he sounds just like Jack." And that's just eerie. That's just crazy. You know what I mean? Because this is someone who there's no video footage of, there's no audio recordings of, you know. And um, let people know a little bit about BJ and, and her connected connection to Jack. Mm -hmm. Like, what is their relationship? I mean, you said the Mater D, but there's more than that, right? I think that she just, you know, I, I think it just is that. Like, if if Jack Durant is the director or producer of a movie. Then BJ is his assistant director. She's covering his ass. She's watching out for him. It's kind of like when you hear about like CEOs and they have their secretaries, and their secretaries know more about them in their life than their own. And wives they oftentimes do. take the fall as well. Exactly. Right. I think, and because there's there, she she told us stories of times where like, you know, she 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 took care of the drama so Jack didn't have to, kind of thing. Like a woman of the era, I guess, right? Yeah, truly a woman of the era. Yeah, there's some great interviews that we tagged onto the end of the movie with her and some other people that knew Jack, um, a cook who worked there for 52 years named Ernie. And um, a reviewer recently said um, that that's the best part of the movie is the, is the end credits with the interviews. So, you know, what, whatever that's worth, you know, um, but, well, but yeah. we did that for a reason it is, is now that you've seen the movie, here's some thoughts on the real sure, Jack. Yeah. Right. Um, but going back to your question, you know, one at running wild, we've always done things kind of our own way. And okay. that's, and you know, for better or worse, we've done it our own way. That, that may have led to some bad things, right, and, and, and well, other good things. But when I wrote the Durant script, while I was writing it, I actually had the thought, this is going to piss some people off. Okay. The people who know the history, it's going to piss them off because they're going to say, wait, what? Dizzy Dean wasn't like this. What? Don Bowles, this this whole thing didn't happen. And I thought, though, if they if they get through the entire film, even if they're pissed off, they'll they'll understand when they get to the ending. Right, and I mean, you can't. The, people can't also expect us to have everything factually perfect. I mean, it's still a movie; we have to still make it entertaining. So, you know, the the stories may be embellished, things like that. But, like I said, I think our main point was just to tell the story of Jack Durant, because not many people knew they know his restaurant, but they don't know him, especially people today. Have you guys done? not biopics but stuff based on real life or is this more the first time i think this is the first time that okay. we've approached 
that. And again, I don't yeah. like many biopics right. because a lot of times you see Hollywood biopics, um, it's just kind of like, okay, you know, you see Ray with Jamie Foxx and it's just like this happened to the guy and then this happened and that happened. Whereas Raging Bull, you know, you'll, you'll talk to Jake LaMotta and he says, ah, this is all bullshit. It's not really what happened. That is maybe one, the best biopic ever made. Right. And that's kind of in that and all that jazz is kind of what I was returning to is let's do a character study of the man. Let's not focus on exactly what happened. Let's let's try to get his essence, as James said. So then obviously to cast Tom Sizemore, I mean, was he always on your list? Um, And what does it take to get an actor of that level? to come out here and shoot basically a low budget film. He wasn't he wasn't the original. I forget who who was the original. I made a list of like 10 people. Sure. Okay. And it's a real interesting list if you look at it because to imagine the movie with with these 10 different people, I mean just super opposite films could have could have come out of this. James Woods, Ray Liotta, Don Johnson even. You know, some people that that I thought my target was Let's pick someone who's a really good actor, but they've obviously, the peak of their career is far gone. They've already had their peak. That okay? was a choice that you? Yes. Okay. Why? Right? Because I'm like, you know, Tarantino. Right. I'm attracted to this idea of let's remind people of the talent that once was. So like Robert Forster and Jackie Brown, he brings someone back that everyone has forgotten about. Boom, look how good he is. Or John Travolta. He was on the outs right. before Pulp Fiction. People don't remember that. And then and even Don Johnson, he did it with Don Johnson and Django. Of Tarantino <clears throat> films, yeah. He's obsessed with that. I right. like that idea. Right. So I made a list and <clears throat> we had a couple people interested. We had one that James is talking about. I don't want to I don't want to name who they are. Um, because they got pissed when we when we went with Sizemore. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, they threatened <laughs> to sue us when we went with Sizemore. Um, but uh, but you would not sign any contract at that point, right? right? Correct. It's just all phone conversations okay. and things well, like that. Well, Hollywood is a is a whole. Um, there's a lot of big talk in Hollywood. You know what I mean? And, and well, no, especially I don't. why don't you just why don't you share well, what, what was, you mean by that? Well, it was funny for me because I didn't really have to deal with them. I was more watching Travis. Right. But what I found interesting is him, when he was dealing with these agents and stuff like that, I quickly learned how much whinier they are in Hollywood than, like, say, just dealing with local talent or, or independent, you know, actors. I'm like, it's, they're all babies. It's a diva type. Of yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of them are really good people and things like that. Like, like you know, Tom Sizemore, even though he's somewhat crazy, is, is a really nice guy. But a lot of them, agents and stuff like that, are just all... Well, what is the process <clears throat> of just... Even going about that, what you I send a script, obviously. What I usually say is this, okay? This is what I usually tell people. They say, "How do you do this?" And I said, "It's easier than you think, and it's also harder than you think. It's it's a double edged thing." A lot of people don't. So, they, a lot of people just pick up the phone and actually call someone. Well, that's yeah, that's you, what we you, did. Like, right, that's yeah. what we did. He has a, we have an right. IMDb Pro account. That right. You can get all their contact info. Okay. You call them up. Say, "This is what I want to do." Agent or whatever. Yeah, this is what I want to do. Here's my script. There you go. And then you just kind of and you hope for a callback. Starts going from there. Sort well, of what thing. what I learned is so the first person on our list was Burt Reynolds. Okay, I fucking love Burt Reynolds. <laughs> all right, you know, and he's one of those that I'm like he's underrated as an actor and as a director actually. So I'd love I'd love to be the one. I mean, obviously Boogie Nights was a little bit of a reminder, but but it's, it's been too long since Boogie Nights. We need to remind people again how great he is. Anyway, so I called Burt Reynolds' agent up and say, "Hey, we have this movie. It's called Durant's Never Closes. We're interested in talking to Burt about playing in this film. This is my first call to an agent ever." We say. Cool. Is it fully funded? No, it's not fully funded. We don't have all the money. Click. They hung up on me. I go, okay, I learned an important lesson. You Call did. Ray Liotta's you should, agent. You should have called Ray Liotta's agent first. No, Save no, no. That for Bert, right? Yeah, no, I called Ray Liotta's agent. Hey, is it fully funded? Yes, it's totally fully funded. <laughs> then they say, send us an email with the details, the financial offer, and the script. I like hang up the phone. I'm like, Shit, now what do I offer? <laughs> so well, it's this crazy learning process right. of like, you know. But you learn quick though, it sounds like. You do. Oh, yeah. yeah, you have to. Yeah. You, otherwise, it won't ever happen. Right. 
Because right. I remember, right. I remember when we first started talking to Sizemore, we were up in Jerome at the yeah. time, and the Doing whole what? time Jerome shooting or something? Jerome or... Film Festival. Yeah. Okay. So we were up there. We rented like this house, this pink house, and we we're up there just kind of pretty much partying for a few days because we had some films playing and stuff. And in between all that, we're talking to people, and then I don't remember if I feel like was it. You were, was it someone else's agent, and they say they also represent Tom Sizemore. I forget how Tom Sizemore's name came about, but when it did, it almost like immediately like a light bulb went off. Like he yeah. would be perfect because he's crazy like that. Right. With he has his different, just like how they the lines of reality are blurred with that. Right, guy. exactly, right. and he's almost Jack Durant right. today kind right. of thing. I think he's really close to the character. Yeah, that doesn't mean he didn't do a great acting job. Because really acting, I think the best acting is being yourself on screen. That is film. absolutely film, right? film, film acting, right? right? Is being you right. on screen, right? And, and and that's much more difficult than any non-actor thinks that it is, right? Right. Um, but I remember I was on the, on the streets of Jerome. We were like yeah. getting our badges or something. I get this call. I'm like, hi. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm uh, Tom's agent. And um, he's interested in your movie. I think he's read the script. I'm not sure if he's read you sent, it. You had sent a script at this point? Or? Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure if he's read it. He's in Paris. His computer died. He may have read it. By the way, <laughs> he reads when he reads his scripts, you know, he, he he's always like on the shitter and he wants me to listen while he reads his script. So he like leaves the door open. So within like the first 10 minutes of talking to his agent, who's not his agent anymore, right. she's telling me that Tom reads his scripts on the shitter and that's and, all, and, and with, with the door he open, only reads it on the toilet. Right, <laughs> apparently, but I'm like, I'm like, uh, this, again, that's the Hollywood crazy thing. I'm like, shouldn't you pr protect this information? <laughs> like, this is you know, you've never spoken to me before. There's no rapport here. There's no trust, and then you're just giving all this information out. So, but yeah, the more and and then I talked to him on the phone. The first time I spoke with him, he said, "This character's great. He's got everything." He's he's lonely. He's angry. Well, first of all, when you got that phone call, like, did you recognize the number when it popped up on your cell phone? Or he? Well, I knew he was going to call. We scheduled okay. a call. All right. Because all these people were in L.A. I'm in Phoenix, right. and I'm not going to fly out just to meet them. Sure. No, or I drive get out it. just totally to meet it, them. Yeah. So it's like let's schedule a call with Tom. Right. Have him call me. So yeah, but he 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 nailed the character. Like he understood what was important about the character. This duality of being able to be incredibly gentle and loving and supportive of his staff, but also be someone who cannot ma maintain a, a romantic relationship at all. So, um, yeah. Anyway, he he nailed it. So I thought, yeah, this is this is the guy for the job. Okay. So what happened when uh, was it fully funded? You know, and, and what was the step? How did you get him to like sign on the dotted line, basically? For an out from an well, well, hold on. Let's hear the outside perspective of James, not quite outside. Pretty much, pretty much in my head, the way it went is once he signed on and said, "Okay, I want to do it," and then we negotiated for how much. Then I think it was pretty much Travis and I were like, "Oh shit, shit!" Now how do we come up with this kind of money, kind well, of thing? Basically. This is being way too honest. And and I would say this. You have to do anything. You have to be willing to do anything to get your movie made. And I wouldn't do this again. But we had to do it to get Durant's made and go from making a $10,000 movie with local talent to making something that had Tom Sizemore and Peter Bogdanovich in it. We had to tell lies and, and hustle like a bunch of grifters in order to do that because the only way to get it made was to have the name at the top right so i got the name first and basically what i did i remember saying you know getting off a phone call and being like he's in they think i have all this money i have zero dollars <laughs> and then calling people and being like if you want time size more in this movie i need this money right now i need a check give it to me right and getting it and and the whole production was like that like in the sense that we were not fully funded while we were shooting. What was the budget on the movie? It was let's say it was around two hundred and fifty k. And so, for people that aren't familiar with filmmaking, that's basically nothing. That's super low. Nothing. Super low compared yeah. to Hollywood stuff. It's right. nothing. If I've said this, and I don't mean it, I, I kind of mean it in an arrogant way. Actually, anyone making this movie with the same talent 
in same amount of days or, or anything like that in Hollywood, it would have cost at least a million dollars. So we made it for a quarter of what I think other people would have made it for. The same output. And even still, a million bucks isn't that much, you know. No. So, it, I mean, it was nuts. I mean, when we were shooting, I was still getting funding while we were filming the movie. Okay? It was insane. The, I got funding to pay the crew. They didn't know this. They all suspected it, I'm sure. But I got funding to pay the crew the day before they got paid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew it. <laughs> Everyone else didn't know. James is like, yeah, I don't know if he's my priest or, or what, but like, I, I, he definitely knows all, all of the crazy shit. That but I'm pretty much do. like, I, I mean, at this point, like I don't treat <clears throat> these projects that I do with Travis like I would like another project with someone else. Like before, I want to be paid like that day. Whereas this one, I'm like, well, we're going to figure it out along the way. That's what we usually do. And that's what we did. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I'll admit... And I tell Travis this all the time. When we did our, our crazy-ass 52, 52-week oh, yeah. short things, By the I way, think yeah, we tell, learned... Uh, so you guys did uh, 52 shorts over 52 weeks, and that was in 2012, right? 2013. 2013, right. okay. So, mm-hmm. And you did it. You, you did 52 shorts, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... So I think, I think we made so many good things when we were shooting. Like, so many things went right, but the, also so, just as many went wrong. And I think... For me personally, and I know probably Travis as well, we learned so much just on filmmaking doing that project that it allows us to be able to shoot something like this for only $250,000 because we won't make those mistakes. Whereas I think a lot of times with movies, you hear about the budget going up and up and up because they're having to do reshoots because things get messed up, things like that, where... So like get it right the first time? Right, whereas now we've we've done so much and put it under our belt that we don't make those mistakes i mean for me just just audio wise i knew going into this movie there's absolutely no budget pretty much for post for the most part when it comes to adr things like that so other than maybe two or three lines there's no adr done in the entire movie whereas a lot of movies these days it's the entire movie is adr is is where you go and redub all the audio in 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 post okay right and i knew we couldn't we couldn't afford to have size more do adr in other words you got to get the audio right on set right exactly so so because of uh everything we've done in the past it allows not only me to be able to do that but travis already knows what he wants to direct we already know how it's going to be edited so we already know you know the team of people that we work with regularly that that worked on this film allowed us to go in and boom 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 and just bust it out and, and make it for what we made it for you have to raise all this money um and you don't have it but you have people signed on with your film how does that make you look at life in general and in filmmaking also when when things work out that way work out what way Uh, you have a film that's completed with tom sizemore and a number of other professional actors full piece well it just teaches me like i said you have to do as a filmmaker you have to really do whatever is necessary to make it happen like and, and and I knew that even, like, I was prepared to tell my crew, who's very loyal, and I'm loyal to them, I can't pay you today, but I'm going to pay you, right? But I really wanted to not have to do that and hand them checks on the final day. So handing them checks on the final day might have been the best part of the entire production, was being able to say, we, we, we did it. We, we finished shooting. And we did this in eight days. Right. Let's talk about that too. Right. Because yes, 52 films in 52 weeks, like he said, prepared us for that. How do you make a feature in eight days? Other people have done stuff like that. What's the average shooting a page of uh, features? Three, maybe four uh, pages a day maybe? Right. I think maybe like max is like five or six. So, so we're, we're knocking it. out like 12. I think the top was 15 pages a day. Mm-hmm. And we still shoot at that. Like we're doing a feature in Mississippi soon and we're going to shoot at one at one point we have to shoot 15 pages a day you know not every day but one day we do Mm -hmm. and i know we're capable of doing it um it's knowing what we want it's 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 a lot of people approach movies like they they make one short film and then they go and they make their feature and i'm like why aren't you getting more experience like an athlete gets more experience they're training every day 
You know, they're playing all of those other games before they play the World Series or the National Championship. Yeah, I mean, pretty much any anytime we do a short or we'll just join like one of those film challenge things, like we do that to practice stuff. Like we have, you know, we do the last film challenge thing we did, we did the whole like, because I, I remember I told Travis, like, we should try to do something where we shoot a whole film in one shot. And so we did it with a with a film challenge just to try it out and see if we could do it. And, you know, we learned from that. So if we were to ever try to do it again, now we know. So that's why I say with that 52 thing, that was pretty much a one-year boot camp of filmmaking. Like hardcore, we're going to come out of this. Maybe we'll make a handful of great shorts, but either way, we're going to become better filmmakers. And, and you know... I- and, and and to go back to the to fund the funding as well, you know, we did do a Kickstarter for this for mm-hmm. for a hundred thousand um, dollars, and for me, I think a lot of that success has to do with the fact that I would like to I like to think that we've proven ourselves enough to the community and people around that are are in in the independent film world to support us in something like that, and so I think a lot of the funding was also in part with with the support from you know because you were already kind of established right 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 and so so for me that that's what i i liked was that we were able to get the funding with the kickstarter as well as with investors and things like that investors yeah most of it came from investors um the kickstarter was sort of the the supplemental stuff like that but still it was it would have been hard to do it without that no we we needed every dollar I mean, for people who, I think there's such a, a, like, uh, I talk about this with with the inner core team, is there's such a divide between what people see and their perception of what we're doing and, and what's actually going on. And from the outside perspective, it would be like, oh, these guys are rolling in the dough and they're living the high life and this movie's doing great. And it's like, um... No, we're scrounging for every penny to print every single poster that we need to send to every theater, you know what I mean, that's going to play this film. We touched on Tom Sizemore a little bit. Durant's number closes. You've got Young and the Restless star Michelle Stafford, um, Peter Bogdanovich, John Grease, who John Grease is hilarious in Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. So what was it like working with those guys? Talk about Grease. Grease, to me, he... He was, he, like, going into this, this is the first time we're working with what I would call Hollywood people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's that stereotype of their Hollywood people. They're going to be prestigious and have, you know, because we actually had to get, like, trailers for them and stuff like that. But John Grice completely killed that stereotype because I, and I, I wasn't there, but someone had told me he had two requests. He wanted to eat at Durant's, I think was one. And he wanted to hang out with the crew. First of all, he drove to Phoenix. Wow. Right. Okay, so this is a guy who says, yeah, I'm going to drive there. I like road he lives trips. In LA, I guess. Right? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to drive, right? Um, he's, yeah, he, he texted. John wants to know if he can eat at Durant's and if he can sit in Disney Dean's booth. He wanted to sit in the booth that Disney Dean was right. sitting in. And um, also, if he could have lunch with the crew after he after he hung out there. So right. it's like... And he, he pretty much did. Like, in between takes, while we're changing lighting and stuff like that, he went to almost every single crew member and at least had a conversation. At one point, he was throwing a football around with someone. And, you know, he was just... I don't, I don't know. It just... It, no, just, it, it, it completely changed how you view... And that changes those. the dynamic on set, I imagine, Right, too. for sure. Especially you know? with, you know, like... Like, Tom Sizemore is a great guy and he's right. a great actor, but... It's definitely a little bit more on edge when he, you know, is on set. Cause... Now, talk, tell me a little bit about Tom there. So, Sizemore, he's got a, you know, Jack Durant has a, you know, the set of this mythology that follows him. But so does Tom Sizemore, you know. So, right. was that evident on set, working with the guy? It was. I mean, this is someone who, for the first time, you know, you light without him. We're used to using actors as their own stand-ins, right? Right, yeah. Okay? Yeah. I tell an actor, sit here, do this, don't move. Okay? Tom's, as they're setting up lights. And Tom's in his trailer until we're ready, right? And then he comes in and he sits down and he does a take. And he does another take and then he's gone. Okay? We're done. We have to set up again. He's gone. 
Right. Right. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong about that, I should say. Like, there's there's some actors, classic actors, who say, hey, in between setups, rest. Like, like just, just don't do anything. Okay? But there's a diff- different atmosphere for people who, who hang out. And Grise is, like, like he said, one of those people. He was talking to everyone and, and playing off, you know, people who know filmmaking. You're going to shoot the close-up of, of, of Tom, and then you're going to shoot the close-up of the other actor, and Tom might not be there, right? Yeah. Well, Grise was there because he wanted to help that other actor do a better That's job. That's cool. Yeah, so he, there's something great about that kind yeah. of attitude. And he even hung out and took pictures with everybody, stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I think what what for for especially me with with and with the other crew members is, you know, we we knew when Sizemore's on set, it's not necessarily stressful. We just like, okay, he's on set, he's ready to go, we need to be ready to go. So it's not it just go we go into pretty much work professional mode, mode, professional yeah. mode, you know, everyone's on point doing their thing because you know we only have him for so much time until he's you know done and so it's different for with when he was on set as opposed to Grise, which is a little bit more laid back yeah. and, and stuff like that and i kind of like that tension i mean oh, to, to some degree I, I i liked here's what i liked seeing my crew do a perfect job with that tension it was proof that we put in the work that that someone could walk on and we would do it one take two takes boom there's never a technical issue ever if there's any issue, it's that talent. Does that make sense? Like it, it's them that's causing us to do right. take two or take three, not right. the DP or sound or anything like that. Well, especially too with 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 someone like Sizemore when he comes on set, like he's you can tell he's in character. So the last thing we want to do as as a crew is do something that's going to screw up that sort of that mental focus that he's in because because i mean he he he's tom sizemore he has the rep of being crazy he was crazy but when we called action he turned it on to a whole different level i mean he he adds stuff i think we started with a good script the stuff that he adds to this movie is incredible people that watch it will never know what he brought to it because right. he turned, there's one scene, it's an engagement scene. What I had read in Mabel Leo's book is that this, <clears throat> Jack <clears throat> forced this woman, Helen Gilbert, who was a movie star, to marry him, basically. He said, lock her in this room until she agrees to marry him. And the film, is that in the movie? It is in the movie. But he doesn't lock her in a room. He, he says, he's in the room with her. And he's trying to force her to. It was a three-line scene. Okay, he turned it into a minute scene. He yeah, went on this monologue where he, this he he goes into his racism, his his you know his chauvinism, like everything. But he's just spouting all of this amazing shit, right? That's true to the character, maybe true to himself too. Who knows, right? The, again, that line is blurred, and to me, that's the best place for it to be. Um, but he would add so much interesting stuff. Uh, someone told me on set, an actor said to me, um, you let Sizemore speak his subtext so much, uh, so often, and uh, you wouldn't let us do any of that stuff. I did not answer that actor, but I, what I wanted to say was, well, when he speaks his subtext, it's brilliant. When you speak your subtext, it's stupid, right? You know what I mean? Like you don't like like his instincts are spot on and that's why like he could just go off the handle and it would be really interesting well yeah and i, I know for me i remember <clears throat> when travis sent me the very first edit what was surprising to me and and, and i had you know just for me audio wise like he ad-libbed so much i was like i don't know what to do with all this ad-libbing <laughs> because i don't know how it's going to piece together because i'm used to seeing the script right and i go based on on the script so then when I saw the first edit and saw how much of his ad-libbing we used, to me, I was like, it's perfect. You know, it, it, how could and, you not use it? And honestly, oh, I, yeah. I, I would love to see how much of, of the film is actually ad-libbed as opposed to scripted. Like, I know all the other actors other than Sizemore pretty much had their script and their lines down. 
But I, I would be surprised if if it was more than twenty percent of his of actual. No, I think it's lines. more. I, I think that in every scene he's adding stuff. No, I'm I'm saying I'm I would I'd be surprised if he even did twenty percent of the scripted lines that oh. were in the original script. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah, he's. Wow. I mean, a... he even made scenes better than the way Travis originally wrote them with his ad libbing. Definitely. I mean, there was stuff that Travis did in, in editing that incorporated his ad libbing to change the script. Of that so scene. then you guys would welcome improv. It sounds like oh totally oh yeah if, if it's, it's if, if it's, it's good. good and right. if it's in the I mean he does it right he's in the character and he's making it better now here's an example of when it wasn't good there's a scene with him and Grise and Grise is so good that these two actors can play off of each other and as Dizzy Dean and Jack Durant they literally who was Dizzy Dean by the way just Dizzy Dean was a, a famous ball player uh, Hall of Famer okay. and he became a famous um, radio personality he was a frequent durant's customer and apparently they had a falling out who knows if that's true okay but the film kind of touches on that relationship anyway when they started doing their scenes they're both so good that they just went off in never never land of right. improvisation like yeah. you couldn't bring them back it was like a jazz solo that never ends i think okay? it was, i think they went for a good 20 minutes and the scene's only like two minutes they, they and, and we don't even know what they're talking about they went so far but it's out. all on film yeah I mean, it's all we have that right yeah so at a certain point after two or three takes of that sizemore who is not as easy to control I was just like, let Sizemore do his thing. I took Grise aside and I said, John, I need you to keep bringing it back. It's brilliant, but it, it but at a certain point that improvisation didn't work for the story, right? So there's sometimes right. it works and sometimes right. it doesn't. But Grise was able to redirect it. And that's the best when you have actors that you can work with them that way and they're you know, you tell them, okay, this is great, but now bring it in, do this, like expand it, you know, retract it, all of that kind of stuff. And a, and a really good actor can do that. Yes, right. And yeah. these we're working with the best. Right. I mean, not right. just them, but but um, Peter Bogdanovich too. Um, something interesting about Bogdanovich is that he was the probably least impressive while on set. Meaning, when he would do a take, you would be like what like there's nothing there but when you watched it in the edit you'd be like shit he nailed it he's got all the subtleties knew, yeah like he's he, he really knows right. the subtleties of acting because he's a great director yeah he did more with just just mm -hmm. his Doing face nothing. his face and yeah. stuff like that his eyes um, it's all in yeah. his eyes and, and a little little tiny tones in his voice and right he really understood it and you would give him just little you know he'd say what about this and you give him just tiny little directions and he okay i got it and he'd deliver this podcast is all about for me arizona and i get the impression that running wild films is it's it's focused on this state local filmmaking and so how does what is running wild films place in this state thoughts I mean, for me, I, I always liked the the whole, I guess you could say it's our philosophy of just, I mean, there's so many stories about Arizona. And I remember there was one time where Travis and I were just throwing back and forth stories. I mean, there's stories of like the Nazi camp that was out here. There's a, a basketball team in uh, Miami. Miami. <clears throat> there's so much little stories that don't get known. And everyone just assumes Arizona is just a bunch of cowboys and stuff like that. And I feel like we we should use our talent and what we do to tell those stories because they're great stories. I mean, they would make really good, feel good movies, things like that. And they don't get the recognition they should. Faulkner said something um, after having been in Hollywood writing screenplays for Howard Hawks, maybe the best director who ever lived. Right. He went back to Mississippi. Okay? And he said something, I'm paraphrasing, that within this you know, five-mile radius, I have all of the stories that I could ever possibly tell my entire life. And then he started writing these novels that are classics now. right? So that's the whole theory behind this. If we all go to L.A. or all go to New York, then how do we 
we miss out on stories like Durant's or Bulls. And, and that's as I go around the country, you know, as we travel to these cities that we're playing Durant's at, that's when I want to try to communicate to filmmakers in Albuquerque, Santa Fe, New Orleans, some of these places that we're going to, even Stanley, North Dakota. Okay, which is like everybody's like, what the fuck are you doing playing your movie in Stanley, North Dakota? I'm like, that is the screening I am most excited about because it makes the least sense. And I want to tell those people in North Dakota, don't go to L.A., tell your local stories, because now that we have <clears throat> YouTube, Vimeo, all these platforms, mm. filmmakers don't have to go to those it's mega not an cities. Hobby yeah, yeah. You I mean, you can shoot on an iPhone. Right. No excuses. Right. Just do it. Right. right. Just do the work. So, but the, there, we're, this country is so rich with local stories. Phoenix is not unique. Phoenix has incredible stories, like James is saying. However, every city has great stories. So let's see like American culture get revived and start to see these these great stories come out of all these different cities that's why i'm excited about hopefully screening in places like st louis and cincinnati and pittsburgh <clears throat> places like that that you don't really see films coming out of it's like let's let's see some filmmakers really dig into that kind of local history wrapping up here let people know about your uh don bull's picture don bull's is uh, a, a journalist for the Arizona Republic who got uh, blown up in his car in the late, late 70s because he was associated with the mafia, supposedly associated with, with the mafia. So um, in the journalism world, that's a big story. Why did you guys decide to go after something like that? Well, and again, it's mafia related too. In my mind, first of all, Durant's is not a mafia movie. Okay. Like, and, and mafia is such a small part of, of Durant's life. Okay, And... Um, Valley of Shadows, which is the Don Bowles movie, is not a mafia thing either. It's such a small part part of that story. Well, yeah, Valley Valley of Shadows is <clears throat> it's not so much focused on Don Bowles. It's focused more on all the reporters who came to Phoenix after he was assassinated or, or whatever. You're and that was one of the few times in in kind of in terms of journalistic and in the industry of journalism where people where journalists actually came together. To play on the same team, because journalists tend to be territorial yep. about what they're covering, and they're not going to share secrets because they're writing their own story for their own publication. Journalists from around the country descended on Phoenix and really <clears throat> went after whatever was going on under, on, you know, in the shadows. You know, right? Exactly. And it's really more about what Phoenix was like at that time. Phoenix is such an interesting city because, especially during that time, it's like this growing metropolis however it's still the wild wild west and there's basically still like a few people calling the shots i mean right? look at sheriff joe like i said you know yeah it, it still is kind of the wild wild west so it, it's an interesting that that's what the movie is about it's it's about that phoenix at the time even phoenix now these people from outside coming and seeing that um, it's about so many things, you know, it's about idealism, like the, uh, like, like, you know, um, Bowles was a crusader. Okay. Bowles was someone who believed that I think that the news can change things. Right. The movie is about, is that really true? Can, can the news change things? Can people, you know, idealistically go out and write a story and, and this and was on the heels things? of. Woodward and Bernstein, all right? That stuff. And that's referenced in the movie, right? Right. There's a character that says, "You know, Woodward and Bernstein. What would America be without them?" Right? Because these journalists exposed Nixon, exposed Watergate, right? But <clears throat> the movie is a very complex. Again, there's going to be people who know the Bull story, who see Valley of Shadows, just like Durant's, and they're going to be pissed off. They're going to say, "Oh, that's not the real story. We're not interested in facts." We're interested in exploring these themes and these people. Um, so I'm not interested in just presenting the facts or, more importantly, pointing fingers at this is who killed bulls. It doesn't matter who killed bulls. It's like JFK. Who killed JFK? Who planned it? doesn't matter. The point is the entire thing says, guess what? Someone other than this one guy in a building killed JFK. There's something weird going on. 
the entire thing to me points to the the fact that there's people behind the curtain who are calling shots well and there's also something in the air that makes things like that happen. right exactly um okay you had an experience earlier this week i think i'm not sure if it was early this week you saw a post your poster at harkins right i delivered our posters to the harkins corporate office and then i went on a on a date to see bridge of spies the new spielberg picture at Shea 14 and i did go there because they're playing my movie i also like that theater it's now the the main arts theater camel view as a new location but anyway we went there and we were walking up the steps to the screen to the screening room where uh, bridge of spies is playing and all of a sudden right smack dab in front of me is our poster and it just it floored me because it's right next to posters for i don't remember what but the point is it's right next to all of the posters for the other films that are coming soon to harkins it's equal mm-hmm. that was a huge victorious moment i remember i texted james and i was like check this shit out man like this is one of the biggest victories of the last five years is we made it like mm-hmm. like like we've got something that's being shown equal to those others. And I keep telling people it's, you know, it's, this is not showing it Harkins one time on Friday night. It's playing like a regular movie. The first screening is at 9:20 AM. Okay. There's something beautiful about the fact that it starts screening at 9:20 AM on Friday. And, and it's hard not to, you know, just for us, it's hard not to be like giddy schoolgirls seeing that, <laughs> right. but you know, we still have to be, professional and act like you know i i I always go by and i remember growing up i think my dad said this to me and whenever i do something act like you've been there before so that's what we're trying to do but at the same time in our heads we're like oh my god i posted this on the thing you know so so for me it's also reaffirming it reaffirms me that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing because every time we're getting bigger and bigger and bigger and better so, but it's still cool to see her. It's fuel right. for the fire, you right. know? Yeah. Right. Cool, guys. Um, good having you on. I wish you the best of luck this week for the Thank show. And, and we'll keep an eye on it. And cool. We'll have you back. Thank you. Sweet. I appreciate it. Up next, this is Paul Mayfield, an old friend of Jack Durant. I met Jack Durant when I was 20 years old. And uh, my family had been going there for a long time. But I didn't know Jack, and I was working for a man that hung out there. And he called and wanted some papers, and I took the papers over to Durant's. And and he was in bar one, and I knew everybody at the bar, or everybody in the booth, but but the one guy. And after I gave my boss the papers, I... The man at the end said, would you like a drink, kid? And I said, I'm not 21 yet. And he said, I don't give a blank damn. I'm Jack Durant and I own the place. You want a drink or not, kid? I said, yes, I'll have a screwdriver. And when I left, he said, come back and see me sometime, kid. I did and I was there with him many, many times before he died. We became good friends. I turned 21 about three months after I had met him, and uh, the business I was in required me to go to meetings at night downtown, so I would stop at Durant's on my way home and have a drink. Uh, And I would always sit with Jack at the end of the bar. Not very many people sat with him down there. And we would talk, and. He was became kind of a mentor for me by telling me what all the different business people in there did and how they made their money. After about, I always called him Mr. Durant. After about five years, why he said, kid, I think it's time you can call me Jack. And I said, thank you, sir. And, but he never called me anything but kid until the day he died. 
Jack was not involved with the mafia. Jack just happened to work for people that were involved in the mafia. Uh, when he left Tennessee, he went to uh, Vegas and the Flamingo had just opened and Bugsy Siegel hired him because he had a lot of experience with uh, running gambling places and he was the head pit boss at the Flamingo. When Bugsy Siegel got killed and the organized mob came in and took over because they had put up all the money for the hotel, they took it over, lock, stock, and barrel. And they did not want anybody that worked for Bugsy Siegel or knew him very well there. So they gave Jack Durant $50,000 and a new Cadillac and said never set foot in Vegas again and he did not as long as he lived he did not set foot in Vegas uh, there's one interesting thing about him that nobody really knew for sure where he came from except Vegas the a number of the regulars there in fact a group called the North End Gang down at the north end of the bar, and Jack always sat on the south end. They had a pool going about where Jack was born and where he was from. And somebody would go down and ask him, and he always told, he always told the people that asked him, he always gave him a different place. He never told them where, you know, one day it would be St. Louis, the next day it would be New York City, and and it was he, he just enjoyed that. I think most of the mystery about Jack came because he he was not scared of senators, governors, politicians, anybody. He he didn't he, he would throw anybody out of his restaurant if they got him mad or whatever. And he uh, he was hard on his employees when it was work time but he was very good to them when they weren't working. He was a very generous, good-hearted guy. He just didn't want anybody to think that, didn't want anybody to know it. His whole life, and that's what, that's what our movie is about, what comes out in the movie is that Jack Durant was the restaurant. His life was the restaurant. He had a number of wives and he had his dog, dogs and he liked to go up to Pine Top in the summer and play some golf and cool off but other than that he was at the restaurant all the time it was his passion he had run illegal casinos in uh, in the south uh, uh, where they had they were like nightclubs they had bands and dancing and food and and gambling, and uh, he ran the whole thing. So he, he had been around food a long time, the food service business. Other than the toilets in the men's room, which used to be the tall urinals that went clear to the floor, and the prices, nothing much has really changed. The service is impeccable, the food is good. Uh, it costs more now, but a lot of stuff does. Uh, other than that, it's pretty much the same. There are a few little tweaks on the menu that they don't have anymore, but it's still basically, and that's the way Carol McElroy wants to keep it. He wants to keep it as Durant's. Durant and I share the same birthday month. We both opened in September. I on the 25th in the year 1977 and the legendary restaurant in the year 1950. 
The marquee on Central and Virginia Avenues might as well have been there since the beginning of time, waiting above salt water when Arizona was once under the ocean, like the long neck of the Loch Ness Monster looming above the surface of the famous lake in the Scottish Highlands. I come from a line of insurance agents. Haldeman Insurance. Some of the older patrons of Durant's may remember. Paul Mayfield does. He spoke in the previous piece. My family's insurance company was a few buildings down from the restaurant. The building where that family business once existed is now occupied by the Junior League of Phoenix. Occasionally my brother and I would end up with my family inside Durant's. But really... Durant's is more of an adult playland than a place for a young boy. Cosmopolitans and Doers Neat played the roles of jungle gyms and merry-go-rounds. A smoky bar and red wallpaper stood in for Goodnight Moon and The Cat in the Hat. And then there were the urinals in the men's room, filled with ice. Yeah, urinals filled with ice. I have no clue why the ice seemed to end up in those bathrooms near closing time, but I know they've been doing it for years. I know because Mr. Mayfield did the same thing when he was a young man, just like me. Durant's has been a hangout of politicos and theater people throughout the years. I was one of them. The latter. Age 21 is a good age to fully appreciate the wonder of Durant's. It's where I kicked off that birthday in the late 1990s. I was halfway through a run of West Side Story at Phoenix Theater. Fresh off a Friday night performance, the cast descended upon the old school haunt to christen this boyish face into adulthood. The next day we had a show. <laughs> Two of them. Um, I wouldn't recommend coming hungover to a double feature of such an intense musical. And now, there's gray hair and wrinkles. The sheen of youth and innocence is long past. But, but Durant's, you never went away. You never changed. Like so many other things in this town, my God, an actual business, an actual building that has lasted more than 65 years. What a, what a dinosaur. What an ancient water-bound beast. What a wise and welcoming grandparent. Oh, please, don't ever go away. Let Durant's be a reminder of the way things can and should be in this town. Thanks for listening to the show. On the Grid is produced by Chris Ayers. Intro and outro music was performed by local band Factories. They can be reached at factoriesmusic.com. And by the way, sticking with our theme of local, we will feature a different local band at the end of every show. So if you're a band and you want to reach us, or if you're not a band and you want to reach us, we can be found at onthegridphx.com or email us at podcast at onthegridphx.com. Thank you, and have a great day.